Hi Kings, it's great to be with you today. And wasn't it brilliant just now to pray for our teachers and young people? They've been doing such a great job, haven't they, during such a challenging season. And so let's continue to lift them up in prayer, ask for God's blessing and protection on them as they go back to school this week. Now, over this summer period, we've been looking at wisdom literature, and it's been such a joy to look at books such as Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and now the book of Job. And last week, Jason so brilliantly kicked us off, didn't he, from the first couple of chapters. And this Sunday, I'm taking us through from chapters 3 to 37. Yes, that's 34 whole chapters. Now, worry not, I'm not going to read the whole passage, otherwise we could be here all day. But what I am going to do is just take a few key verses and see what they have to teach us about this important topic of suffering. Now, pain and suffering come to us all. You only have to look at the year 2020 and all that we're enduring and going through with this global pandemic to see that. Now, it might be that you're a parent here and you've suddenly had foisted upon you your lovely sweet cherubs for 15 or 16 whole weeks. That's three summer holidays worth of having your kids around you, trying to entertain them, trying to teach them. They're lovely and it's great to spend time with them, but it has been a challenge, hasn't it? Maybe you live on your own and the feelings of loneliness and disconnection that you sometimes feel have been exacerbated during this time. Or maybe you're a parent and you've had a baby during lockdown and you've not been able to share the joy fully with those you love. Or perhaps you've lost your job or you've been put on extended furlough and it's been a real struggle to make ends meet. And for some of us, we've lost loved ones, family members, friends during this season. And it's been really, really sad. I know at Kings, there are a number of people who've lost loved ones. I've taken a couple of funerals. And this suffering and this pain that this season has caused is very real. And so suffering and pain come to us all. 1 Peter 4 says the following, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now, although Peter in, in this context is speaking about persecution, actually this could apply to all of the suffering that we endure, that we shouldn't be surprised by it. Just by being human, we will suffer. And the question that we ask and that often unbelievers ask to kind of prove to us that there isn't a God is this. How can a God of love really exist and allow suffering to happen? And it's a really important question which gets addressed in Job, although not it doesn't get fully answered. And so before we dip in, we're just going to look at three broad reasons why we, why we suffer. The first is this. We suffer because of our own choices. Now, I don't know who's on Facebook. Uh, I look at it every now and again. And this thing popped up the other day, which showed pictures of the reasons why women live longer than men. And it's quite humorous. And a few of them are going to come up now. This has to be stupidity at its finest. But come on, guys, let's admit we have done some of these, haven't we? Or maybe it's just me. I won't tell you which. But look at them. I mean, my personal favourite has to be the electric saw. That is going to be very painful. And with all of these, um, if you put yourselves in compromising positions enough, the likelihood is, is that it's going to end in tears. Well, it's the age old principle of cause and effect. You reap what you sow. That's exactly what it says in Galatians 6. A man reaps 
what he sows. In other words, there are consequences to our actions. And sometimes when we do something really foolish and stupid, we come a cropper and we have to go through a period of suffering uh, because of what we've done, or perhaps it's something that's been done to us. It's basically the human reason behind suffering. Now, the second broad reason why we suffer is because God allows it or takes us through it in order to grow and develop us. Now, it's either that God allows Satan to come and attack us. So we see this very clearly in the book of Job, don't we, that Jason looked at last week that God allows Satan to come. But ultimately, Satan is a defeated foe and there is only a limit to the extent to which he can cause damage because God is ultimately in control. But sometimes God does allow that to happen. So, for example, Jesus, uh, after he was baptised, was led into the wilderness in order to battle with Satan for 40 days and 40 nights. It's a very real thing and sometimes that does happen to us. Or it might be that God himself intentionally takes us through a period of suffering. So we see that with the disciples, don't we? When they've had this amazing day when they've seen 5,000 people fed with bread and fish and they get, they get to the edge of the lake and the evening's drawing in, they're feeling exhilarated but exhausted. And the, the key thing to do then would just be go to, to go to sleep. But what God does is he, um, he essentially makes them get in the boat. That's what it says. He makes them get into the boat and sends them into a storm. And Jesus goes up onto the mountainside and they get taken into a storm in order for them to learn how to trust God better. Now, if you're a parent here, you'll know the agony and the anguish and the pain of taking your kids to their first injection. Now, we've got four kids, so we've done this multiple times with all of our kids. And I remember this one time when our daughter Matilda was going in to hospital to have her injection done. We'd been waiting for a long time, longer than we anticipated in the queue. So I had to nip off to put more money in the, in the car, in the car park. So I said to Sarah, look, I'll try my best to find where you are if you end up going in while I'm out. Sure enough, she did. Now, on my return, I needn't have worried because there was this most blood curdling scream. And as I walked through the waiting room, you could see parents hugging their kids and going, they're there, it's, it's okay. I'm sure it's, it sounds worse than it actually is. And there was this anguish in the waiting room and I knew exactly where Matilda was. Her screams led me then. I remember entering and seeing two nurses over her trying to find the vein and pinning her down. And, and I just thought, oh my gosh, she's this tiny little thing and you're manhandling her. But actually, I realised that this pain that she was going through was for her own long term good. It might be the case that you've taken your child to school for the first time and you have that same experience, don't you? You take them in and it's always a bit anxiety driven. You know, the kid is crying. And I, I remember doing that with ours. And fortunately, they have this thing where you can go in the classroom with them so you can settle them down a little bit. But there comes that moment when the tears start welling because they know that you're about to leave. And as you say goodbye, they burst into tears. And the best thing you can do at that moment, it sounds so cruel, is turn away, turn your back to them and just walk away. And it, again, it's that suffering, that poor little child suffering. But you know that if they're to grow resilience and develop their social skills, that is a necessary thing. And that's what God does to us. Sometimes he takes us through those times. It, sometimes it's a, a matter of disciplining us. So in Hebrews 12, it says the following. Our father disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. 
for the moment of discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Someone once said that the pain that God causes is like the surgeon's knife and not like the executioner's whip. And I really feel God wants to speak to some of us today who have this misconception of an ogre-like God who is full of wrath and who punishes us and beats us down every time we do something wrong. Actually, God is a God of love and of grace. And the reason that we are um, disciplined or go through times of suffering is because he loves us and he wants us to grow. Now, the third broad area of suffering is this, that we suffer for no obvious reason. Now, this is the category of suffering that we're looking at when we're dealing with the book of Job. It's also the category of famines, of natural disasters, of the 2004 tsunami, which impacted 16 nations and caused over a quarter of a million deaths, never mind all of the people who lost their livelihoods and homes. It's of the order of the explosion that happened in Beirut a couple of weeks ago, where suddenly out of the blue, bam, people's homes were destroyed and people's lives were taken. And perhaps it's something a bit more personal. It could be the cancer that comes to little children or perhaps a sudden death of someone from a freak accident that you weren't expecting. And it's at those moments where we cry out in, in pain and anguish, God, why? Why is this happening? Why don't you intervene? Why don't you come and do something? And in Job's case, we know that he was a blameless and upright man who feared God and turned away from evil. We see that clearly right at the beginning of the book of Job. In fact, God presents him to Satan as an upright and blameless man. Now, that's not to say he, he never sinned or he was perfect, but compared to his contemporaries, he was this virtuous man. And yet in one fell swoop, he loses his livelihood as his animals are taken away. He loses his home as it's destroyed by a wind. He loses most, if not all, of his children, 10 of them. Imagine that, losing all of your children. And then to top it all, he gets this horrible, horrible skin disease. And in a very short space of time, it's all gone. And when we try to make sense of these seemingly meaningless moments of suffering, whether it's ours or Job's, we generally make a hash of it. Because the way we like to do it is we like everything neat and squared away. We like easy answers to difficult questions. We want it set out like a nice neat formula so that it kind of helps us so we can go, oh, okay, I understand. But actually suffering is often not like that. We need to be honest about that. And it was true to say of Job's so-called comforters, they came and they wanted to square things away, make things neat. Now they get a bad press. They weren't as bad as people think. Actually, when they first arrive, it says they sat with Job for seven days, sprinkled dust on them. They sat with him in his suffering. And that's the best thing that we can do. If someone goes through a traumatic event, is just to sit with them, just to be with them in their suffering rather than giving answers. But unfortunately, uh, they go on and they do give these answers and they try to explain things away. In Job 4, it says this, Eliphaz, one of the um, friends says, consider now who being innocent has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? In other words, Job, upright people don't go through suffering. So therefore, you must have done something wrong in order to be experiencing this suffering. 
In verse eight, the next verse, it says, as I have observed those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. In other words, you reap what you sow. And so Job, you are reaping what you have sown. And this is the explanation that they give. And this is essentially what they say to Job for numerous chapters, speech after speech. They go round and round. The bulk of the book is given to this, to this explanation to Job that you have done something wrong. You must have done something wrong. And yet, despite their con constant efforts to convince him of this, Job maintains his claim to innocent right innocence right through the book. In chapter 31, a bit later, verse 5, it says the following, If I have walked in falsehood, or my foot has hurried after deceit, let God weigh me in honest scales, and he will know that I am blameless. And so a large part of what Job does in this book is to tell both his friends and God that he is innocent. And in so doing, he's left confused and bereft. He's thinking, if I am blameless, why is this thing happening to me? And so he swings from trusting God in his suffering to crying out angrily to God. In verse 21 of chapter one, it says that straight after his children have perished, he worships God and declares, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in chapter two, verse 10, he declares to his wife, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Job's response is not only insightful, it is truly miraculous. For having experienced such searing loss, he is able to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. And he also recognises that he doesn't deserve the good gifts that God gives. In fact, he deserves suffering. He sees that even in the moment. And yet he also swings drastically to the point where his emotions overwhelm him and he rallies against God. We see this in chapter seven, where he says the following, therefore, I will not keep silent. I will speak out in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my sorrow. When I think my bed will comfort me and my couch will ease my complaint, even then you frighten me with dreams and terrify me with visions. And then in verse 20, we read Job say, why have you made me your target? Let me encourage you, friends, that trusting in God doesn't mean stoically putting up with your pain, stiff upper lip, just gritting your teeth and getting on with it whilst offering pious platitudes and niceties to God. Oh God, I love you, aren't you brilliant? Aren't you lovely? And then individually you just cope with your pain. Actually, no, 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 God wants to involve us. Real trust involves being honest and vulnerable with God, getting angry with him at times, voicing how you feel, sometimes going mad and really saying to God, God, I can't do this. Why are you letting this happen to me? God has made us for real, honest relationships with him. He doesn't want robots who just do what he asks, but he wants people who generally wrestle with him because only then do we have true relationship with God. When my dad passed away, having suffered for a few years with cancer in 2008, my world fell apart. I was also leading a church plant at the time and I had an emotional burnout 
to the point where I just couldn't return to work. I just didn't have the emotional reserves to carry on. And in the end, I had to come away from the church plant and go back into secular employment. And it felt like my world had disappeared. And there were moments when I came out and I rallied, I shouted to God. I went outside, not out in the road, in the street in London, but out in the country and just cried out, God, why are you letting this happen to me? What is going on? But I didn't do that often. And actually, most of the time I buried what was going on and I numbed my pain somewhere else. I delved into Netflix or whatever. Uh, It wasn't around at the time, but TV or whatever. And I just didn't bring my emotions to God. And that was the mistake I made, which caused me to remain stuck. But Job doesn't do this. You may notice as you read through the book of Job that not once do Job's friends offer to pray for Job and not once do Job's friends address God. They don't do that. But you will notice that so many times Job comes before God and addresses God and speaks to God and brings everything to God. Job never stops praying. He complains, but he complains to God. He screams and yells, but he screams and yells in God's presence. No matter how much in agony he is, he continues to address God. And Job's doggedness in seeking the face and presence of God means that suffering did not drive him away, but brought him near to God. And the crux of the book of Job is this, that right early on, Satan, when speaking to God, says this. He says in verse nine of chapter one, does God fear, sorry, does Job fear God for no reason? In other words, Surely the reason he fears and obeys you, God, is because you've given him all these nice things, this nice house, this big family, all these possessions. Surely that's the reason that he loves you and fears you. If you were to take all of those things away, surely he would end up cursing you to your face. But we learn as we journey through Job that he doesn't do that. He keeps coming before God and he keeps drawing nearer and closer to him and honouring him. Even in his anger and anguish, he still does it. In chapter 9, verse 4, Job utters this. His wisdom is profound. His power is vast. And in chapter 12, 13, he declares to God belong wisdom and power, counsel and understanding are his. Ultimately, Job realises he needs to be near to God because in God is all wisdom and knowledge and understanding. Although Job realises that he will never know what God is doing in the darkness, he takes solace in the fact that he knows the God who knows. In chapters 16 and 19, after two of Job's most gut-wrenchingly honest and despairing rants to God, we read the following. He says in verse 19 of uh, chapter 16, Even now my witness is in heaven, my advocate is on high, my intercessor is my friend as my eyes pour out tears to God. On behalf of a man he pleads with God as one pleads for a friend. And then in Job 19 verses 25 to 27 we read the following, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see my God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. 
Job was around hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus. And yet in his moments of pain and suffering, every once in a while, he catches a glimpse of this one who is to come, of this redeemer who would rescue humanity, of this advocate who stands at the right hand of the father, pleading and interceding on his behalf. And this gives him a solace of comfort, knowing that he knows the God who knows. And so we also can take comfort. We who live hundreds of years after Christ and have the benefit of being able to look back on what Jesus did and read about it in the New Testament, in the Gospels. This man who came and lived a sinless life, who went willingly to the cross to die, who took our sin and our punishment upon himself and who overcame the grave and death and rose again victorious, hallelujah, so that we who put our faith and trust in him can know relationship restored and life eternal. And yet our pain still continues. And in this moment, we have a choice. We can continue to search and look for the reason why we are suffering and in the end become bitter and twisted, or instead we can accept that we will never know the reason why we sometimes suffer and put our trust instead in him, the one who knows. And so the way we should respond is by including God in our suffering. He w went through the aloneness of Gethsemane and Calvary so that we do not need to be alone. He wants to be with us in it. And in fact, he wants us to draw others in, friends to help us. Now, hopefully we won't have friends like Job have fre had friends. We won't have those who give us bad advice. But I want to ask you and implore with you, if you are suffering, do not suffer alone. God is there with you in it and your friends can come alongside you as well. Last week, uh, my family and I went camping in Dorset. Uh, the weather was a bit crazy. It was sunny, but also quite windy. And there was this one day when it was pouring with rain. And so in order to flee the madness of the kids bouncing around on the canvas, we decided to jump in the car and escape. And so we went down this dip and up this hill to try and get out of the campsite. But unfortunately, there was a tractor right in my way. And uh, I got really frustrated and I thought, oh, what's he doing? And he was even reversing towards me and I was getting a bit irate and angry. And Sarah was like saying, calm down, Andy, it's okay. And I am calm. Clearly I wasn't calm. <laughs> but as we reversed, I realized what was going on. The tractor was putting stones down in order to give traction so that we might be able to drive up the slope. And when I had that information, when I knew that that was what was happening, I rested easy and could reverse and just wait for what was to come. Now, other cars were, were kind of trying to go round the tractor. They didn't know why this was happening. And so they were going up the slope and they were skidding and wheel spinning in the dirt and the mud and sliding back down. And I was laughing to myself, laughing at other people's misfortune. Naughty me. And Sarah did tell me off, actually. Um, but in that, God spoke to me. And he said to me, you can either suffer alone, try and get up this slope, sliding around on your own, or you can trust in me. I am the one who lays the path before you. I am the one who has suffered and knows what it's like. Come with me, rest with me, and I will take you out of this pain at the right time. Now, there was a lady called Corrie Tenboom, 
who was around in the Second World War. And she was in one of the concentration camps and experienced the anguish and agony of losing her sister. And she could have become bitter and just spent her life wondering why and just getting mad at God. But instead, she didn't. She, she knew the one who knew. She realised that actually, when you have a tapestry, most of the time it's like we're looking at the underside of the tapestry that's a mess, but actually God sees the true picture. And so she had years of ministry thereafter where she went around talking about this message that we're to trust this God and allow him to allow us to forgive those who've done wrong against us. And she would read this poem. It's called The Weaver, and I'm going to finish by reading it to us now. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colours. He weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skilful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned.